Welcome to the Fuqua Show for the stories, experiences, insights of Tim Fuqua. I'm your host, Thomas Cheng, and today's guest is Abby Williams. You know, Abby is a second year MBA student at Fuqua, and she's passionate about how health tech can improve access and outcomes in the United States. She's also interested in the role of the family caregiver of the elderly. Abby is enthusiastic about startups and is the outgoing co-president of the Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital Club, or EVCC. So welcome, Abby. Thanks for having me. Abby, what else do you want to share? What else might people not know about you? I guess since we uh, write 25 fun facts for our admissions essay, there are probably two. First is despite being really interested in healthcare, I actually have a horrible fear of needles and IVs. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> horrible, horrible fear. Second, um, another irony, Abigail means father's joy in Hebrew, which is ironic because I have two moms. So yeah, two of my 25 fun facts. I just pulled on ironies in my life, apparently. Is, is that intentional? Do you know? The name? Yes. Uh, no, it was not intentional. <laughs> Their story for how they named me was they wanted a strong name so that if I actually became a doctor and I had to save someone's life and they said paging Dr. Blank Williams, that the name would elicit confidence over the intercom. So apparently paging Dr. Abigail Williams, they thought could save a life and then how ironic that I would never be a doctor because I would never make it through med school for for my fear of needles and IVs. Huh. Huh. Well, you're committed to families and family caregiving. And speaking of your two moms, that commitment actually started with your own. So I would love to hear about your family and how those family members shaped you. Sure. So like I said, I have two moms. I call them mom and mumsy, which is, tends to be one of the most asked questions when people learn I have two moms. Mom and mumsy. Mom and mumsy. Yep. And then Grandma Jane's always an important, uh, she's a character uh, and an important person in my life, my mom's mom. But I'd say like my parents' influence has been really, really strong. So some background on them. My mom was a is a first generation college graduate. She worked her way through law school and then in her 40s started her own law firm which she built into a multi-million dollar business. And then Mumsy, who's is older, she was accepted into Stanford when she was in high school, but her parents wouldn't pay for it. And so she went to this small women's college in Northern California, wasn't really allowed to work or to really thrive in a, a career because of where the country was at the time, allowing women to work. And then she later became a paralegal and then went to law school at 40. She's uh, probably a genius. She see, I mean, just like the nerdiest person, but I mean that in the nicest way. She, when we'd watch Jeopardy after dinner every night as a family, and I think she could give Ken Jennings a run for his money. She's outside of pop culture, just knows a ton. And it's always funny because my mom, I think got a D in, in econ in college. Like I always joke that she uh, didn't understand the basics of supply and demand, but then built her own multi-million dollar business. So yeah, I think I'd like to think they've both had a lot of influence in that I really love startups and entrepreneurship. Um, and I think that comes from my my mom's background. And then Mumsy just instilled this love of learning and it was so appreciated in my family. So I have always loved school and been pretty curious and always wanting to learn. And I attribute a lot of that to both of them. 
Could you tell me that they ended up working together? They did. They met at a law firm in, I think, the late 80s, which is sort of crazy just statistically that that could happen. And then, yeah, they've been together ever since. So I think one thing that's always been interesting for for me, or at least in my childhood, was just gay rights in this country have, have come a long way. But in I was born in 93. And so at the time, they could not get married in California until I was a sophomore in high school. When was that? That would have been in 2008. So there was a brief period in 2008 in California that gay and lesbian couples could legally marry. And then Prop 8 in California overturned that right, but they were married in that that window. So it was recognized by the state. And then it wasn't until the summer after I graduated from college in 2015 that the Supreme Court recognized gay marriage. But I guess like when I reflect back, and I didn't share this with my parents until I was about 17, because of where the country, the state and the country, I grew up in California, so it was very on the more liberal side, obviously. But even still in the 90s, most people had not met a lot of gay people. People weren't out or they certainly hadn't met children of gay people. And so it was this somewhat like hidden identity I had. And so it became very much internalized that I wanted to be a really good representative, not only for my family, but also like gay and lesbian parents more generally that when people met me that they like were impressed that I like excelled in school, I was a good kid, I was good at soccer. And so that when they later found out that I had two moms, it was like, okay, like gay families can do this. And just because like it was often, I was oftentimes the first child of, of gay parents people had met. And so it sounds like you're pretty aware and conscious of the fact that you and your family were not traditional I actually, uh, speaking of another fun fact, I, I mean, I grew up with a just very, very privileged lifestyle, and my parents' motto was they worked so we could travel, and so we would travel every every winter break, a lot, oftentimes to Europe. And in fourth grade, I, I came up to my parents and said, "Why can't we be like a normal family?" And they thought, "Okay, here's here's the talk. Like we're gonna have to describe it." I said, "We travel every winter break. Why can't we just stay home?" They looked at me and they're like all the things that you think and see in our family like that's the difference you see like if you really want to stay home like we can and so we did the following year I said okay that's that's boring like let's let's go back to traveling <laughs> so yeah I guess like I always knew we were different I guess the traveling part maybe resonated a little bit more of our differences because I thought normal families stayed home but we would be told by by people we met that their thoughts about gay couples changed upon meeting my family or upon meeting my parents and me. So yeah, I guess we were, I, I remember learning that growing up and I guess internalizing it in, in some way. And then the other piece that I learned later on from my parents was they were really worried that I was going to get bullied in middle school for having two moms. They're very good at long-term planning. So they, they picked a really small K through eight school in Sacramento and ended up enrolling me there so that I would not have to go to a big middle school. And you know, when you're five years old, you just like Abby has two moms is like to a five-year-old is like, okay, so what's for lunch? It doesn't really matter to five-year-olds. And so grew up in a really tight-knit academic community, grew up in a tight-knit neighborhood community. So yeah, it was never an issue, never was bullied, but I would say those those choices in the school and in our community very much had an impact on life in general. So it sounds like from that young age, you were used to doing things a little bit differently from everybody else. 
Yeah. I mean, friends from home will always give me a hard time. And as, as they should, that when I went to sleepovers, I'd much rather like hang out with the parents and talk politics as a kid. They would give me a hard time, but in in such a nice and kind way that I always just sort of went to the beat of my own drum, but was very accepted for it. And I think that just gave me the confidence to continue on. The other piece that I was thinking about recently was teachers and, and families would just tell me like, oh, Abby, you're going to run something one day. You're going to run a company or run this country. And I would always just sort of blow it off and shake it off. Oh, thank you. But I guess when you to you're told time and time again as a kid that like you're going to run something, you just start to think, okay, maybe I will. And I think I just now reflect on how fortunate I was to have such a supportive community because I think so many times people and especially women are 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 told not to study math and science or told they can't do it and I just got this wonderful upbringing where I had two moms so they were running the household and then at the dinner table I'd learn about how they were running a law firm and would get to hear about how my mom thought through business development, how Mumsy thought through constitutional law. And so I thought women for the longest time ran the world because in my world for a long time, they they did. And then I had a Grandma Jane who's the matriarch of the family. So I guess this is Women's History Month and I owe a lot to the really strong females in my, my family and my life. Well, speaking of Grandma Jane, <laughs> I want to hear about her. Oh, Grandma Jane, she's a character. Yeah, we've always been really, really close. And then got even closer, I would say, or I, I now joke with her that she's had more of an impact on my career than some classes, which she she loves to hear that, but became her caregiver twice in the last couple of years. In 2020, because you know she had to just one up 2020, mm. she had pulmonary embolisms in both lungs. Luckily, they were caught before they came fatal, but ended up living with her for five weeks during the pandemic as she was recovering. She was still pretty independent, but needed needed some help. And it was while I was doing my MBA applications actually, and pushed it back around because it. I just needed to give her more attention. But then more recently became her full-time caregiver for four weeks over winter break of my first year. So I was planning on going out to California for a couple weeks to drink wine with her. We we like going to the wineries, playing rummy cube, like she loves watching Married at First Sight. Who doesn't? Uh, who do yeah, who doesn't? And like other good Netflix shows. But right before I went out there, she ended up having a fairly steep health decline and went from she, – she was 87 at the time and she's now 88. But went from living independently to suddenly not. And so I became her full-time caregiver for I think about four weeks. So cooking, cleaning – meal planning, taking her to a lot of doctor's appointments, urgent care. I remember January 1st, 8 a.m., she had an MRI and like not how I envisioned it as my at 28 spending January 1st. Also just it's it's really tough emotionally seeing a loved one in pain and it was tough for her from going from completely independent to being dependent on someone. And she's a strong-willed Irish woman. I hope if she ever listens to this, she'll, she's okay with that description. <laughs> and I left that experience and flew back to get back to classes, exhausted, like emotionally drained and thinking, if it was difficult for me, like I wasn't recruiting at the time, I didn't have classes, I, I don't have children. I was like a relatively healthy 28-year-old. If it's hard for me and, and my family, how are others going to do this? And starting in HSM boot camp, I had seen the demographic shift this country is having. And so 
we will have a lot more older people. And so became really, really interested in what is the role of the family caregiver. And then there is a trend of seniors wanting to age in their home. And so my general thesis was that family caregivers are critical and they are a neglected stakeholder in clinical conversations. And so spent my second year of business school starting to interview family caregivers to get a sense. N equals one is not a great sample size. So wanted to learn from from others what their experiences were and and particularly making sure that the people with whom I spoke had different backgrounds culturally, socioeconomically, just to get a wide range of experiences and learned that like caregivers were taking on a ton of nursing and medical tasks, but weren't being trained, weren't being compensated. And just in general, just weren't being thought about on the clinical side of things. And so I became really interested in that and um, doing a mentored study with a, a caregiving startup, which I think they're doing really cool things in the space. Well, tell me more. I would love to hear, as you mentioned, that's something that I have never thought about once in my life, but is an experience that many, many Americans are going through. Yeah. I'd love to learn more about what you took away from the mentored study and some of this research that you've done here. I think there are a few things. One, the medical and nursing tasks being a uh, just a common thread. Two is aging is and and how people and society support their elderly is deeply cultural and can be also deeply religious. What was really interesting was learning about some of the cultural nuances of forced. For some people, there is this expectation that your elderly parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever it is, like you are responsible for taking care of them, whether that means they move in the home or you live close by. And it is it's a duty. It's a it's a duty to your family. In other instances, I learned that sending relatives to skilled nursing facilities can be deeply stigmatized. And that's the other piece I guess that I should mention is Assisted living, memory care, independent living is is really, really expensive. And so the other piece that I had been thinking about is in order to afford that, you, you either need to own an asset, that, that person needs to own an asset they can sell, like a house, or have a lot of stocks to sell, or and or you need generational wealth. And so when we look at the history of this country and barriers, I think of like redlining of, of how people were just not allowed to buy a home. Now they can't accumulate that wealth. They, they lack the generational wealth. So there are just more limited options as well because hiring people to come into the home or moving a loved one into some type of facility is, is really, really expensive. And so I think it's just, to me, it's a fascinating situation that the United States is is approaching of, we're about to have a bunch of aging people and I'm not convinced that right now we are we are ready for that, but there are a lot of luckily smart people doing work in this space, and I hope as a country we we do get ready. But I, I do think for anyone listening, there's a great quote. I think it's by President Carter's wife. She says something like, "There are four groups: you're either needing care, going to need care." going to be a caregiver. And I now can't remember the fourth group. It's a great quote, <laughs> but it's like everyone's going to be impacted by this. And what I learned in my own family's experience is we were so reactive. We thought we sort of had a sense. Um, it's like 
Grandma Jane's 87 and living independently, and we didn't have a plan. So I think to the extent that every family can think through, who's your power of attorney? Who has your power of finance? Like, where, what is the plan? And for family, some family members live close by. My, we're very fortunate. My uncle lives right near my grandma, and so he can go over and help her now with some caregiving tasks. But it's every other day, and the rest of the family is thousands of miles away. So how do we support Uncle Mike while he's doing that? It's hard to think about, like a loved one getting older and and not being as independent. But I think the more you can be proactive in thinking through those steps and giving the loved one, the senior, the autonomy to make some choices, the better off you'll be. But like my own family, we're still working on this, and we've we've still have work to do to to be prepared. And so I'm also trying to have those conversations with not only my grandma, but like all of my family members so that we never get to this like reactionary place like we were last year. Well, I want to ask, Abby, you're someone who's really enthusiastic and experienced Mm -hmm. about startups, specifically health tech startups. Is there a place for these startups to try to solve this problem, this big, massive problem, especially when up against these big health giants? What's your thought there? I think so. I think especially in in value-based care and so for those listening where American healthcare is a foreign language, I think there are when when health insurance companies and providers have the financial incentive to keep people healthy and to when financial incentives are aligned, I think there is a spot in the fee for service model. I think it's always hard. I think um that's the case for any type of service delivery in in United States healthcare but i'm optimistic as more care shifts to value based cares capitated models and again now i'm just going through american healthcare jargon but probably need an, another episode to describe what all that means but maybe it's a plug for taking healthcare markets here at here at fuqua and the health sector management program and for you, what's exciting about startups versus working at a larger company or being at a place with more institutional power and capital? So I have only ever worked at startups. I stumbled into it after college. So one thing people don't know is I actually wanted to be a consultant when I was uh. an undergrad. <laughs> But I didn't want to do any of the case prep, so I bombed some interv- some final case interviews, which was for the best because uh, I didn't get the offers. Uh, the truth comes out why, why, uh, yeah, about consulting. But I had this neuroscience degree and knew I wanted to go into business and to work in a fast-paced environment. And when I say stumbled into startups, I mean it happened they like this company Savoda was at the career fair my senior year because two of the co-founders went to Lafayette College and i had already talked to the consulting firm that i wanted to talk to but i was dressed up and had my hair and makeup done so i thought well i should probably go talk to at least one other company was flipping through the booklet saw Savoda was hiring science majors and no one was in line I I don't know what my path would have looked like if there was a long line for Savota. But anyway, chatted with them 
ended up getting the offer. They made um, software for, they do make uh, software for pharma and biotech clinical trials. And my other joke is I wish I had accepted the job to advance science and help cure cancer. But at 21, it was a job offer. And they said 30 days of paid vacation and catered lunches. And I didn't cook at the time. So I, me up. Yeah, I liked to travel and I liked food made for me. So I took the offer and joined as employee 64, stayed for six years. We grew to over 700 and I just, I loved the work environment. Um, the pain, it was really fast paced. There was no instruction manual. It was go figure it out. And I, I love that. I love that of startups of go figure it out, build a process, learn from it, iterate, ideally document it so that others can learn. And then every I think every six months to a year, I'd have a new team, a new manager, or a new job, or some combination of all of the above. And I just loved the constant change and the the pace. And then got to see really great growth and learned a lot of valuable lessons, particularly we grew because we executed on time and with really high quality. And that just led to a lot more business. And it's, it's hard to grow in as a startup in clinical trials, because it's a pretty risk averse industry, as it should be. If you move fast and break things, like there are real people's lives in clinical trial, like multi million dollar clinical trials that could go wrong. And so it was a like, we have to move fast and iterate on our internal processes, but not at the expense of, of quality. And so the, the Savota team, just really incredible the the quality that we were able to maintain and that they still maintain through some really large growth. And I like what you said about not having a playbook because for some of these big problems, like the one that you just described of supporting caregivers, there is no playbook. Otherwise, people would have figured it out. Yeah. I Yeah. I think that's what's fun is, I don't know, I I've different strokes for different folks, but I want to just go figure out a problem, whether it's for within a company or I guess like society more broadly, as opposed to being told, here's the plan, just go execute it. To me, it's really, really fun to build. And I think the other piece is, I mean, when I committed to play soccer at Lafayette College, I mean, California, no one had heard of Lafayette. It was not a big brand name. And then I went to Savota and it went 60 people. It certainly was not a big brand name. And so I just became very comfortable with, I don't need the big brand name, but I really need great people, an interesting problem, and and the opportunity to to grow. And so, yeah, I guess like coming here to, to Fuqua, it was never really a question of doing like a custom search for, the, for my job and came here knowing that I wanted to join an early stage startup with the goal of improving health equity. Um, but needed to learn the healthcare system to understand where where I could play a role and where a company could could move the needle. Well, you've clearly done great things here, especially with the entrepreneurship and venture capital community. What's next for you? Are the teachers right that you're going to run something <laughs> one day? Yeah. We'll find out. I, I don't know. I guess I'll just uh, see where where life takes me. But hopefully, to um, an early stage healthcare company where I can continue trying to improve access or outcomes to healthcare in America. Well, it sounds like you grew up in this non-traditional family, goes a non-traditional path right out of undergrad, doing something a little non-traditional here at Fuqua. I'm really excited to see what happens for you next and where you go. Thank you. Um, it'll be fun. Last question I want to ask you is, 
going back to your family, do you want to leave any messages for them? I think my message for mom and mumsy for sure, but all of them is just eternally grateful for the support, the opportunities they've given me, the the encouragement. And I joke this, they're, they're sort of like Philadelphia Eagles fans. They'll also tell you when you're, you're not in line, but support uh, me in every step of the way. So just a, eternally grateful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Abby. And thank you to mom, mumsy, grandma, Jane, everyone who helped Abby get here to this point. She's doing great things. You should be so proud. And best of luck moving forward. Thank you.